I'm Drew. We are on our journey to become better leaders by touring fantastic worlds and inspiring lore by going on a wonder tour. We connect leadership concepts to story context because it sticks to our brain better. You can find out more at wondertourpodcast.com. All right, Derek, let's light ourselves on imaginary fire and in doing so, spark a flame that will engulf the world. It's time to enter the world of the Hunger Games. Welcome to the 24th Weekly Wonder Tour. May the odds be ever in your favor. All right, this is a momentous uh, Wonder Tour. I almost said Hunger Games. Um, this is a momentous Wonder Tour. Uh, we have our first guest here, and his name is Danny. And I'm going to let him introduce himself, and then we will jump into what we're talking about this week. Hey, thank you, Derek. Thank you, Drew. Uh, as they mentioned, my name is Danny, and I'm just excited to to be on this wonder tour, just being able to share this experience, uh, you know, coming on here. I've been listening to Wonder Tour for almost on like binge, binge listening, if that's a thing, uh, working out. So these guys have been getting me through my workouts. So I'm excited about uh, about just kind of exploring this, this uh, venue with you guys, and I appreciate the opportunity to kind of come on. So thank you. Oh, we're we're honored, Danny. We really appreciate you. So talk to me about what how do you feel about the Wonder Tour? How do you see the Wonder Tour in your life? How do you experience this journey to become better leaders um, and, and help others to do the same? I think of it as a license. I think of, you know, most people I, I like the quote where uh, I think Derek says at the end, like, remember, those who wonder aren't lost. Is that, is that the direct quote? Oh, something along those lines. And yep. you have people oh, yeah. who, just, who just kind of, you know, they just kind of wonder about things. And then why is things the way that it is? Why do we do that? And I think you guys have kind of started to peel back the layer a little bit on not just specific things, but you can apply it across whatever industry you're in, whether you're in the finance industry, whether you're in, uh, you know, just the like retail, anything like that. Why do you do the things that you do? What, what, what drives you? What makes you want to be a better leader? And I think you guys have kind of scratched the surface on that and kind of each and every week as I've listened, I've been kind of infused and I'm like, man, this is really good. This is really good. And sometimes you know these things, but you don't have a name for it. And you guys have kind of put that on there. So I think it's give you a license to kind of keep growing and keep keep going, I guess. So that's why I like the Wonder Tour. Plus, you guys do cool movies that I like, too, as well. And I like to go deep on movies, too. So, <laughs> Oh, yeah. I had to find some good use for that at some point in my life. Because I otherwise, I'm just, like, up late at night thinking by myself or, like, trying to convince somebody to, like, you know, come sit around outside on the porch and talk to me about Christopher Nolan movies or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it does. It's it kind of wells up in you. And uh, yeah, this has been a really good outlet. So thank you, Danny. We really appreciate that. Um, Drew, you want to set the stage for today's Wonder Tour? Yeah. So our scope today is The Hunger Games, just the first movie in the series. You know, I like to be opinionated about the movies as well. <laughs> Sometimes about the acting performances, I'll get into it. Um, but in this case, I really enjoy the first Hunger Games movie. Not so much the rest of the Hunger Games movies. I think we kind of like, in my personal opinion, it kind of falls off after the first one. And if the first one was just self-contained and ended there, it would be awesome. Um, in fact, after watching this, you're re-watching this. I was like, oh, man, I really just want to go watch Catching Fire. And then I was like, no, no, stop yourself. Remember the last time you watched Catching Fire, you were very upset afterwards. <laughs> so uh, I, but I'll turn it over. <laughs> you want a Nolan ending, don't you? <laughs> I do. I want like a nice, a nice clean ending that comes full circle and like it follows the normal story tropes. And that's just not really what you get there. There's just like too much not inaction and stuff. But we're not here to talk about that movie today. So, Danny, talk to me about why do you like The Hunger Games? Uh, I think it's it's a very interesting movie. You know, you have uh, you have it, 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 so many layers to it. You have the people who are the haves. Then you have the have-nots, and then you have those who have pitting the have-nots against themselves so that they can have what the haves have, in a sense, if that, if that makes any sense. But I think it's just interesting. You have, there was an uprising, and, you know, you, you could even see this uprising in our world today, but, like, in the in the movie standpoint, there's a, they give them an opportunity. Like, they're using uh, fear to kind of drown on any type of, motivations that the districts would have so i think it's a really interesting book and interesting concept and you guys are looking at game theory and what what a what a good game what a good book a movie to kind of study and analyze on because there's plenty of it within the game so within the movie so that's kind of why i like it good characters too as well and you can relate to them i think that when you talk about a game uh, really, a game is just a system or a series of interconnected systems, right? Most of the time, game like any game that you look at, you know, the simplest of games like baseball, right, is a not, not that that's maybe the simplest of games, but you know, a simple game like baseball, right, is a series of interconnected systems that you have going on and they're kind of like layered all together. I think one interesting thing about the Hunger Games is that there's actually like a visualization of that system or of some of the systems, right? Like within the dome, you have kind of like this one system, which is going to be the kind of like this free for all fight that's going to go on. And within that system, there are some rules, kind of, and then there are game masters. And even, like, from the game master's perspective, you can actually, like, see a 3D representation of the system in real time. So I, I like that because it kind of allows us to look at the system or at the game more like we're, like, looking at a board game. Um, and and more, that's more how humans are probably used to looking at games is more like a chess match or something like that. And so it kind of simplifies the game a little bit. But then, of course, you want to not just get yourself stuck in the the what's on the board currently that I can see, because we know that we've talked about in previous Wonder Tours talking about game theory, that that's not that'll get you really into a bind quick as if all you're doing is looking at the existing you know pieces on the board and where they're at and stuff. And you're assuming that the that one state that the game is in will give you all the information that you need to win or all that you'll understand the rules well there to win. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the world. 
Yeah, I'm going to get nerdy for a second on the, the game board since you brought it up. <laughs> um, I think it's really fascinating, and this is just one of those nerd moments, but it's like uh, at first with this, and I think with the fake fire with her, you think, oh, it's just holographic. They've they've really nailed holographic project projection, right? Somehow, some way, holographic projection is nailed. As the moviegoer, we see CGI, right? But but think about it from their point of view. If you put on your empathy hat here just for a second for fun, it's like science empathy, I guess. <laughs> but um, when he's talking about on the game board, he's like, I need a tree right there. OK, and it, and it really blew my mind because at first I was like, oh, these are just holographic projections of fire because I was thinking about this while I was watching it. And no, the fire can burn you. So it's act, it's not actually it's like matter holographics or something. You know, where actually what they are projecting is real. And I think that's fascinating to think about for a second. So anyway, it's just one of those rabbit hole moments within the episode. But I just thought we'd had to bring it up because also you've got the the dog, right, that they genetically engineered later um, and they're able to unleash these things. So that's the other thing that's kind of going is you get holographics that are real somehow. And then you've got this like massively rapid genetic engineering and growth of organisms and because these things aren't robots i mean these things are real so those are the two things that stuck out to me and the and the game board all right back to you guys i was gonna add <clears throat> i was gonna add that uh you mentioned game board uh, it kind of threw me back to when you guys did you know your total wonder tour on inception how you and the, the movie like if you get hurt in the dream it, it hurts like crap you don't die but it hurts you feel it and this one's a little bit different you get hurt and you're hurt you know what i'm saying going back to your the holographics thing is actually real so you got me thinking about that a little bit there don't mean to bring in inception into this one but just so that threw it out <laughs> we can always bring in and nolan movies right drew <laughs> oh yeah yeah i mean i bring in i probably bring up nolan movies almost every day and <laughs> just in everyday life i'm like what this is like this scene in interstellar <laughs> but it's it's just fun to do that. And and you're absolutely right. And you could probably talk about game theory in almost every movie because there's always a game being played in it. So, but in Inception, you're absolutely right. They are kind of going down layers of the game. And, you know, we, we didn't focus on that specifically, but that's kind of the point of the Wonder Tour is you can figure out how all of these things, these concepts, these systems, um, these applications are all kind of interconnected. And as a result, you can kind of see like, okay, well, maybe this one's like this one. But then when you look at it from a 90 degree angle, different, it's not, you know, it looks very different than this other scene in this other movie or this other game that's being played. And through that, what at least the goal for me is, is so I can understand better all the different models and ways I can even interact with and see the models, the different types of players and the different types of games and stuff like that so that I can apply that in real life. And of course, in the end, um, our goal is to to win but more than that you know what we need to do, redefine what winning looks like here and so i think that that's something that we see that katniss does really well in this movie she plays within the rules of the game but she redefines what winning actually looks like yeah i like that i like that yeah, a lot. <clears throat> she also does define that but i also see uh like well, when one person wins, everybody else loses, and not just the players, but the districts. So it's uh, it's, it's that double-edged sword, you know. Well, Derek, why don't you uh, why don't you talk to us a little bit about what type of game you see at play here, so that we can start to kind of figure out what's the model that we can apply to the Hunger Games. 
so the kind of game that I see is a game that is, it, it really is, I mean, there's multiple layers to it, right? So I, I don't know if we are talking specifically just about the, the Hunger Games themselves uh, in this particular context, but I, I'll go with that. Um, this is a game that would reset in some way and shift uh, every time a player enters or exits. And uh, so then each player really because of the the number of players that are out there, um, you know, they're running like a mixed strategy, right? <clears throat> and what do I mean by that? Is that I think this is this is something we've touched on before and I didn't I didn't have the right words to frame it up, but I always used to say long and short game or a front game and a back game. Um, you know, where the back game you don't really divulge too much and the front game is how you want to be perceived. And I think there's some good wisdom uh, about that in this movie. The front game and the back game. That's good terminology there. Okay, so you're kind of taking that terminology from like, uh, you know, front of the house, back of the house, maybe a restaurant or something like that, right? Where they do have, they kind of have like a, you have the operation that's behind the walls that you don't actually see, where they're actually making the food in most restaurants. And then, you know, they're, they're washing the dishes, they're doing all that kind of stuff. And then you have the the front where you see everything, right? Like the way, normally the waiters, the waitresses are right out there with you. They're engaging with you pretty much 24 um, seven. And that's really the main customer experience side of it. So there's this front and back game going on here. I really like this when we're looking at the the kind of internal inside the Coliseum hunger games that we have going on here, right? So talk to me about the how the or what the front game looks like first because that's the obvious situation here, right? What I guess Danny, what do you see the front game as or like the visual, the game that's 100% visible uh looking like here? I, I think more of like control, right? Because you have like the the president and the the different having set up this game within this arena to to kind of uh, suppress any type of thing that could come from the districts. You have twelve districts that's happening, and I think that's the front game. That's the game we're kind of um, get privy to. We get to see that. We get to see them go in each of the districts and pick pick the competitors and draw from a hat. And then we see them come and they get them ready and they kind of being paraded because they're going to need to have sponsors. So that's the game that I see is the front game that we're seeing. Whereas and then on the back game is a little bit more deeper because you have kind of underlying tones. That's why they're doing what they're doing. It's one is it's definitely for, you know, excitement for, you know, the because if you're going up against each other, one person killing the next person, one lone survivor. That's a great, everybody loves that, right? But then within that, then you have the back thing, which is more like really they're doing this because it almost seems kind of ingenuine because uh, many years ago we had this thing and the districts came together and they tried to fight. So every year we celebrate that by picking two people from the district and having one person be the victor, like kill themselves. So it's like, that just seems counter, counter. Like if I was, um, if I'm in the district, all the districts, I'd be like, Something's being pulled over my eyes here. What's going on here? So that's that's what I'm questioning. Ooh, I like that. Okay, so I like where you're going with that there because I think that when we look at the, um, we do get like a couple like gazes into the back game that's going on, and one of the gazes we get into the back game is 
oh my gosh, I'm I'm blanking on uh, what the guy's name is, but the president guy, right? When he talks Snow? about hope. Is it, Snow? is it President Snow? Yeah, I think, yes, yeah, Snow, Snow. So when he's talking about hope in that one moment, yeah, yeah, Donald Sutherland, um, he's sitting in that, he's sitting out there in the, the garden or whatever, and he's talking to the, to the guy about hope, and he's like the game master, and he's like, you have to, He's like, you need to give them just enough hope, but not too much hope so that they they like crash the system. Essentially, it's very interesting how he basically says, like, we have a critical kind of control that we need to have of how much hope there is in the system. If there's too much hope, then they're going to overthrow us and they're going to they're going to really be able to rise up and change things. If there's not enough hope, then they're going to overthrow us and they're going to they're going to burn everything to the ground, basically. So we have to we have to keep the hope levels in the middle here so that's kind of the back game that i see is they're trying to keep the hope levels in this this middle area i don't know derek what do you think about that i i think you're you've just invented hope management uh, <laughs> with his with his little anecdote there and i i find it fascinating i was going to mention this is that uh almost every time he's talking to the game maker not every time but i think it was in this one he's always in the rose garden and he's always pruning and so this guy is a pruner, right? <clears throat> he's not just pruning roses. He's pruning all these people, too. He goes around, you know, basically pruning the, the I would say, the outgrowth that he does not like, right? Um, and so you have to think about that, too, is that if you are going to run a good back game, you have to be in the business of pruning uh, what you don't like, Um and you got to do it. It's got to be pretty passive aggressive, unfortunately, <laughs> at least from his point of view. Um, I would say a magnanimous leader, though, uh, prunes in. I don't necessarily say that a magnanimous leader necessarily prunes, um, but they definitely, uh, I would say, try to drive growth in a certain direction. And I think that is a different style. Um, it's a positive style that encourages growth in a certain direction uh, towards hope. Um, and I think a magnanimous leader is all about trying to uh, cultivate hope. What do you think about that? He wants to be the, he wants to be the gardener that prunes. I want to flip what you said. I think that, I think that the, that pruning is an okay vocation. <laughs> like gardening is an okay vocation here. And I think that what he he wants to be this master gardener who's just who, who's kind of like controlling the ecosystem and stuff like that. The problem is he's putting too much control on it. He's he's gone from pruning. Pruning allows for growth, right? Pruning actually the purpose of pruning is so that you can get additional growth uh, and additional fruit. What he's doing is tinkering. He is. He just is like tinkering with every little thing, all the levers and the knobs. He's trying to get all of them perfectly aligned. Um, and he, by working with the game master and others that will be revealed, you know, other characters that are kind of in that back game uh, that's being played. That's what he's trying to do. He's he's tinkering to keep, you know, want, for one thing that we see in this movie, the hope levels within a certain range. Yeah, one thing I would I would add on that is that I think the magnanimous leader leads by pruning himself. And getting rid of the things that he doesn't want in himself. And then others see that and they say, I'm going to prune that in myself. Uh, I'm going to take that away. Um, and I think that's that's the that's the big difference. Snow doesn't he, he doesn't think he needs to prune anything. <laughs> he he looks at himself as completely 
uh, you know, infallible, right? And that that is the mistake he makes. It's arrogance, right? And and on a, ultimately, arrogance is is down. You know, it brings him down. Um, but yeah, I, I that would be the magnanimously uh, lesson that I would take away from uh, from Snow. So I like I like that we brought that up. I don't even know how we got there, but yeah, that was good. I like that. Yeah, when you're arrogant, you don't allow people to point out your blind spots, you know, and I think uh, that's the one thing we as leaders have to learn is to learn to recognize that we do have blind spots and allow people to speak into our lives and say, hey, this area right here that you're pruning, maybe you want to think about grafting it back. It's a different concept and it's something that's broken and you <laughs> put it back together versus, uh, you know, pruning. So I think arrogance um, overshadows um, doesn't allow people to speak into our lives and point out our blind spots. I think that's important for, for every leader. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you, Danny. Um, oh, Drew, 100%. I mean, I, I, I want to dig into this back game a little bit more because I have ran across this, like a, come to a crossroads in my own life before where you have to figure out or I have to figure out what's okay to do in the back game. Because the back game... The front game, like it's everything's on the board, so it's it's all kind of fair. It's like, hey, the, the other players can see what I'm doing. The back game is where you risk getting a a Quattrocentro in Italy type uh, shadow government going that's kind of running everything. And there's like we didn't to, to bring this up, you know, I'm a history guy and I like uh, especially like European history and, and Italian history. <laughs> There are these we knew that there were some shadow governments going on in Italy during the Renaissance, uh, kind of pre Renaissance into Renaissance and then all the way uh, up and afterwards. But over time, it's become more and more uh, at least historians have become more and more confident that the shadow governments were actually running everything. And it's it's like the people at the time, like we don't we aren't able to know if they realize that. But we didn't realize that for a long time. We were like, yeah, the Medici's were really powerful and stuff like that. They must have ran things. But it was like, no, there was like like the, the provisional government was not really doing much. <laughs> it was really shadow governments in most of these these provinces kind of that were running the show. And that's where the back game can become very dangerous. And that's what we have, in, in my opinion, that's what we're seeing with Snow. He is running the back game like he knows everything. And he is acting like he is he is God in this game and he can just do, you know, whatever he thinks must be the right move. And that's exactly how he talks to the other players in the game. I think there's there's a limitation he runs into, though, is that because he runs it with so much command and control from one spot, um, that is not like that's not a values driven back game. And I think that's where it really breaks down for him is that he loses that the overall shapeability. You know, to the game and how it goes. Uh, you know, number one way is the the game maker is given autonomy to do the game maker role, and he doesn't like that. <laughs> he realizes this like way too late though. Um, however, what's Snow supposed to do? Go down there and make the game himself? Uh, you know, he tries to give these game makers these like I don't know, let's say reprimand type talks. You know, well you better be careful. I really like you. <laughs> and it's just like way passive aggressive, you know, kind of, you know, the way to say it. Um, and I don't know, he'll say some overt things. He'll say some direct things. And then he'll say something like that, which like these veiled threats. I'm going to make you eat some berries. <laughs> it's so creepy. Um, 
And I, you know, that's where it breaks down for him though. So I don't know. I, you know, I, I get what you're saying. Totally. Like the back game, what do you, what do you do in the back game? How do you run a back game? Um, I I'd like to switch over to the actual, uh, hunger games now, if it's possible to start talking about the front game and back game there, because I think this one is, um, this one's interesting because it really is about, uh, in this game, optics are a, a, an offense optics are a defense. Um, and let's talk about that for a second. You know, we're talking about front games and back games for um, the optics never run on the back game, uh, but the front game for sure. Right. Yeah. So the optics. Oh, man. Yeah. The, the same thing we just talked about. Back game, front game is really key and maybe most obvious in the way that PETA plays the Hunger Games. So we're moving into the smaller system, the smaller game of the Hunger Games within the Coliseum that these 24 uh, players are a part of here. Within that space, the front game is really... Well, I guess the front game is always critical, right? Because the front game is what's going to allow you to make moves to create dynamics with the other players, things like that. The back game is more like your mid to long tier game where you are in this situation like if you're PETA at the beginning of you know for the first half or so while he's running with that other group he 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 is a back game unto himself pretty much right he doesn't have any way to communicate with Katniss um, or with Rue or any of these other characters that he might be sympathetic to or might be sympathetic to him so he's running a back game unto himself that is never ideal. We see what happens on Snow runs a back game to, unto himself, but um, we we do also see that that Peta has sympathy and also um, some humility to later on in his interactions with the other players, where he does not think he's always right, and is and even we see that at the beginning where he he's putting on this false bravado in the com- in the initial conversations with Hamish and Katniss. Um, and he breaks down and is, talks about how his mom didn't even believe, doesn't even believe he can win. So we we do know that there's a certain humility to to the back game. Um, maybe that's one of the pieces of the back game is you like that you need a deep level of humility in order to run a good back game because why do you, I don't know I'm, I'm I'm trying to ask myself this question but let me ask you guys this question why do you need humility to run a good back game? That's a very interesting question. Um, I think. When it comes to humility, you need to recognize that there's ways to improve your back game. And if you think about like if if we're running a back game, we're probably playing at a higher level, right? So we're we're probably playing above everyone else who's who's just focused on that front game. The the fact that we're in the back game tells us that we're we're thinking moves ahead. Think of like if you're playing chess, like you know, you're thinking moves ahead as you're playing. So but and you can get overconfident in that thinking too as well and saying that well your back game is is on floor it's perfect you 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 are stepping towards that victory lane you're stepping towards the finish line and you just keep moving forward but if you're not humble enough to recognize that within your back game you got to make sure that you're always keeping the front game at and at the foresight and also thinking like well, your back game needs to be modified too as well depending on how the front game is going right so if something happens in the front game that that impacts the back game so we got to be humble to recognize like our front game might not be perfect. We could be playing. We It's all about where you focus and how much you focus. I think it's important. 
And the one thing I really liked about you say, let's focus on the Hunger Games and the games that's within the arena. I think that's more of, I think of control. Like that's a controlled game in a sense, right? That ultimately the game master doesn't have control over. If you think about what's the, uh, what's the, what's the, if you give a game a job description, what's the game master job description? Create a game that's pretty much controlled that we could, you know, ultimately put everybody in this pit and we have one victor comes out. We kind of know how that ends up. So, where we thought we had control, we don't have control. So that's kind of how I think about, you know, with that piece. And just to add my two cents on the, on when you ask about the humility part in our back game. I like that a lot. Hey, I also want to add on here, you know, that you've got to have integrity linking the front game and back game as a magnanimous leader. Um, you know, I think that's, that's kind of what Danny was kind of uh, leaning into there is, um, you know, with the humility, you don't want to do things in your back game that don't match the front game that you're projecting because that's just a persona, right? <laughs> and you, you don't want to get into the point where this is where it gets dangerous. Okay. Where you're doing things in the back game that are devious, that are not full of integrity. And then also in the front game, you're, you're projecting a persona. That's usually what happens, right? If you're doing if you're doing a nefarious back game, then you are using a persona on the front and you do not have congruity between the front and back. And so I think that's, that's pretty interesting. Um, I think that's a, it's a, it's a good way to look at it. And I think that's what this game is played here. Um, some of the players like Cato, for example, has an extremely simple front game. Uh, his front game is to kill everybody. <laughs> Well, his uh, front game is tied closely to his back game, so I don't think it's always that like if you're an e- you know if you have evil tendencies or you know you you have a bad bad character that you have a disconnected front game and back game. Sometimes you just the the character is kind of like like you said the, there's no projection. It's just they're showing you their back game. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, he's he's totally out there with his back game. That's right. Um, yeah, I mean his back game I guess would be for Cato, and I like using him as an example because he's the most extreme. Uh, he, you know, he's the 10, right? If you caught that in the the player countdown, he was a 10 and Katniss was an 11. Um, why is that? Um, I think one reason is that he didn't do anything that was gutsy like what she did. She actually took aim at the game makers and she's the only one out of all of them that did that. Uh, she's the only one that acknowledged that they are, they are playing a game. Uh, as well and she didn't like that game that game was ignoring her and getting her to feel this shame because she missed the arrow right uh you know or she missed the target um and she's like no 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 i'm going to just to quote drew no 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 <laughs> uh i'm gonna i'm gonna pierce what pierce the is it the veil here between the two worlds um so let's talk about that for a second you know, like she actually like there was a piece of glass between them. I mean, I thought there was. Uh, but let's say figuratively speaking, there's this, uh, you know, uh, projection of a barrier between them. In reality, there was no barrier. And she was like, I'm going to pierce that. So let's talk about that. Yeah, I'll, I'll touch on that a little bit because I, I like I like the the idea behind it, that you have these people with these weapons that could kill. and we're just out in the open, like 
that's you're right. She she did something that was kind of unspoken of, right? Like you, that's like an unwritten rule. Like no, you don't you don't do that. And she kind of like was gutsy. It kind of works out in a favor, but makes you wonder that the people playing the back game one they're like, whoa, whoa, we might have to think about maybe putting up some defenses for ourselves here, protect ourselves, protect our interests in here. Um, you mentioned Cato. I think it's interesting when they talked about their districts, like what they say, their districts, they, they plan for this. When they become a team, they train, they train, they train. And, you know, I think I like to think of, uh, I'm reading a book right now, Simon Sinek's book, The Infinite Game, right? And uh, who who's playing the finite games? Who's playing the infinite games? I think that's interesting if you look at these characters uh, to think about that. Like, are you are you playing the game knowing that this game is going to stay here even if you come and go? Or are you like thinking of it from an infinite standpoint? So that's kind of what I was thinking about when, when you were talking about that. Oh, I, I love it. I still haven't gotten to reading that book. I have it on my reading list, though. I'm very interested in it. I can just give a, a just quick side personal anecdote here. You know, as a kid, I loved watching football growing up, and I would just live or die by, you know, team winning or losing yeah, every Saturday or Sunday, depending on college or pro football. And as I've gotten older, I realize that those finite games are just, they're futile. I, I still will watch some, you know, I, I don't have to be there. I don't have to watch the Patriots every Sunday. It's just, it is what it is. I'll watch, you know. Uh, over the last you know five to ten years, I just kind of like recognize that the infinite games are better than the finite games. Play the infinite games. You do. You don't want to get caught up in these finite games where at the end there's declared a winner and a loser too often, and then you definitely don't want to let that like seep into your your mood um, and and let that ruin a day for you or something like that. So I think what you're talking about here is perfect because you see most of these characters are very much either because of fear because they were selected and thrown into this game all they can see is the game because they need to escape this game to even make it into another game so they're stuck in this game Cato, for example or like the you know the people from district one or two they volunteer for the game so they they're playing like a again they're playing a slightly larger game here because they're playing for glory essentially and they recognize that but again they're still within this game because this game is how they're going to achieve the end the ending win of glory where Katniss right from the get go she is not about winning this game she's like all right I'm I'm volunteering for my sister because that's you know she immediately starts to show her character by, by volunteering as tribute for her sister. And we have this, you know, I think that's like one of the first moments in the movie because the, honestly, the first few scenes in this movie are kind of like all over the place in my head. Um, it's not the best cinematography or like, it doesn't give me the best frame up for what's going to happen next. But that was the first scene where you're like, okay, like I can get behind this. I'm interested in seeing the rest of this movie now. I, I, I empathize with this character. I wish I could be like her. So I think what we're looking at with Katniss is somebody who from the get-go understands that there's another game being played and maybe she doesn't know all the rules of that game yet but she she recognizes that if she wants to succeed she can't get caught up in this just in the hunger game she has to figure out a way out of this this sub game into the bigger game um and we'll i think we'll get back to that later how that actually works out in the end but let's talk really quickly here about how do we how do you win in a Hunger Games type situation? Because there's definitely times where we might feel like we've been in a Hunger Games type situation, you know, whether it's a competitive business environment or it feels like you're in kind of a zero sum game with a, you know, with a friend group or family members who are, you know, creating factions over some issue that happened or something like that. And 
like how do we I don't want to like specifically say how do we play Katniss in this situation or like, but maybe how do we learn from from the best things that Katniss does to be able to uh, to win this game or to survive the game? Well, I would I would say one thing is, uh, you know, this is probably the most overt thing. And I know this isn't necessarily a wonder tour thing so much, but you got to let uh, you got to let a few moves play out so you can understand. Well, I'll, re- I'll reframe it because I initially I was going to say like, you know, let people wear themselves out. But I'm going to take a step back from that and say a little bit of you've got to see the speed at which the game is being played first. Because I think that's the first thing. Um, and I think that's possibly why she goes two kilometers out from any other player on the board is that she really want to put some distance between her and the most rabid of uh, the other competitors. Um, and unfortunately for her in that strategy, the game reached a Nash equilibria uh, and, you know, Cato started walking around with a pack. Right. <laughs> and so the game reached an equilibrium and then she calls the, um, you know, she calls the game makers to uh, shake the equilibria uh, up. Right. And so I think that's the thing is that you can only play back for so long. Um, so that's the piece that I would take away here. And I'm curious to see what the other ones that you guys would take away from this. I do want to point out here that I think we have a slightly different game than we might have in some other situations. So we've talked before about the Nash equilibrium, the Nash equilibrium kind of being the the ideal point in the game that gives the most out, you know, that gives the highest amount of outcome, you know, game theory is all about kind of based on mathematics, right? So you're kind of trying to like allot the most, most sum of points um, for the players in the game. And that's kind of where the Nash equilibrium lives is what those, what that sum or, you know, what point, what decisions lead to that. We've talked about before how it's, you know, it's usually not that clear in reality, in these games that we're actually playing, it's definitely not that clear in the hunger games, but it's also not a pure strategy. So sometimes an Ash equilibrium is just one point where it's like, okay, it's clear that both parties or, you know, all the parties should, should play this way because it leads to the best results. That's not what we have going on in this situation. That might be the case in like a, in, in more of a pure competition where the game is more understood, known, laid out, the moves are more clear, um, you understand better wh- who each player is, you know, in a, in, a, in a perfect competition, you know, all the players are very, very similar and all the players have very, very similar moves available to them. In this situation, not true. Um, we have more of an oligopoly. If you're talking microeconomics, we have a different players with different kind of levels of understanding and knowledge of the game. They also have different skill sets and different moves that they can make based on those skill sets. So what you end up with is more of a mixed strategy game where the ideal outcome will not just have one Nash equilibrium, but probably multiple Nash equilibriums potentially, or the Nash equilibrium will be heavily taxing on one player or set of players over the other players. The only the only Nash equilibrium, we have a pure equilibrium at the end um, when they take the berries that that that. We can get to at the end, but that's the only one that's a pure strategy equilibrium. Yeah, I was just I was I guess I was speaking it in terms of more of a temporary equilibrium, you know, where she's just trying to create one, at least for herself, 
um, and then they just kind of naturally coalesce, uh, you know, together as a cluster. It doesn't last. It's never going to last. We, you know, we we know that ultimately this is not actually a defined outcome. But if you look at a certain time step of the game, and I think this is teachable, you know, in uh, life as well, is that you want to, and I think we see this. Um, you know, it's it really has to do with being a peacemaker versus a peacekeeper. Uh, a peacekeeper type person is going to be someone who kind of uh, does what Katniss does and kind of, you know, skulks back off to the side and and tries to see like how it's going to play out and maybe doesn't take such an active role. And a peacemaker is going to go right towards the cluster uh, and says, "I'm gonna I'm gonna find this equilibrium." <laughs> you know. This isn't a, you know, typical hunger game where people are dying or anything like that. It's just, you know, uh, let's say, uh, you know, the dying part could be replaced with an argument or some kind of, you know, undesirable aspect of life, um, you know. And so anyway, that's that's I think you're you're in and out of equilibrium all the time. Um, and that's energy draining when you're trying to hold equilibrium. So. I think that's that's kind of where I was getting at. So I'll just strip off the Nash part and I'll just stick with equilibrium because I think that those come and go. <laughs> They're very fleeting. Brilliant. Are you going towards let me try to rephrase this maybe in, in terms of what you said about being a peacemaker or a peacekeeper? Are you going towards the equilibrium or are you letting the equilibrium come to you essentially? And I, I don't know if that's accurate, Derek. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, I, I would say someone who is a uh, a peacekeeper isn't going to actively they're not going to make actions around that other than uh oh settle down now settle down let's put our weapons down you know um they may put it in that regard uh a peacemaker would be more like you know starting to tear into you know motivations you know why um actively spending energy to kind of tear down, you know, why is this, you know, why, why is it that you want to take out this other tribute? <laughs> Again, it, it breaks down in Hunger Games because that's the goal of the game, right? But um, if you talk about regular life, that's, that's totally different. That's where you kind of brought that piece in there. So I wanted to um, at least try to think about that for a second. A lot of it's personality driven, I think. Um, it, but by default, it's personality driven. I tend to be more of a peacemaker than a peacekeeper, where Derek, you probably tend to be more of a peacekeeper than a peacemaker. You're more willing to let the game. And again, we 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 switch it up all the time, right? We're never doing the same thing, you know, cons, you know, with with 100% consistency. But I would say that in my you know many experiences between us, I tend to like go directly toward and try to create the equilibrium because my personality is more so the like the pusher. <laughs> I, I want to move fast. Um, and you're you are more so usually on the well, let's understand, like you just said, let's understand the speed of the game and then let's kind of calculate our moves based on the speed of the game and figure out how do we put the right amount of energy in at the right moment to turn the tide. Yeah, I, I think what you're getting at is kind of situational, right? It's going to be based on, you know, where where you're at in that specific time frame. And we can see that within the game that they're playing, it's situational based on what's happening. It, it could be fast-paced at the very beginning where it was. You know, it's kind of like everybody jumped off their, their stands and it was quick. And then it slowed down. So the pace of it slowed down. So I think based on your situation, 
will determine as we're talking about, are you going to be a peacemaker or a peacekeeper trying to find that balance? So I don't know if it's one or the other. I think it's kind of situational in, in what you do, whether it's, you know, in your work, in, in the game context that we're talking here, I think it's going to be situational. And I, and I think if we accept that, we, we don't think of ourselves as being one or the other. We think of us as having that happy medium. Brilliant. Yes, that's that's exactly what I wanted to hear, Danny. I Yes. I, I, our personalities drift us towards being one or the other, probably. But if we want to become leaders with a magnanimous character that really seek the good of others and create win-wins and things like that, you're absolutely right. It has to be situational. And that's the challenging thing about the Wonder Tour is it's not really like these formulas are just perfect for like, this is how you solve this problem. It's usually like these formulas are more like models for how you can look at a problem and how you can understand a problem. So we've talked about kind of step one here again, and these, these are all really rough models, but it help, it's helpful to try to put like, at least for me to try to put some kind of a visual with it. So step one is about the pacing, understand the pacing. And then step two is basically like based on that pacing, if you, now you're in, you know, you need to figure out the current situation and maybe the next couple situations that might occur. And from there, it's going to give you the opportunity to decide, do you need to let the equilibrium, you know, let it let us gravitate towards equilibrium on our own? Or do you need to start to drive the situation? So I, I do think I want to dig a little bit deeper into this, though, because Katniss goes kind of ping pongs, like you said, very situationally. Her, you can tell her personality is more to be the peacekeeper, but she forces herself to be the peacemaker, where she will try to force things into an equilibrium when she's playing from a disadvantage or when she just needs to mix things up. So, take me to this to this uh, this idea of mixing it up potentially you have a mixed strategy here in this situation where there's potentially multiple equilibriums or the equilibrium is shifting and there's winners and losers um, depending on where you end up at in that situation we've already talked on previous episodes about how like the big the first mistake you can make in game theory and playing the game is to to not understand what game you're playing is to think that you're playing like a pure strategy game and it's actually a mixed strategy game where there's multiple equilibria <laughs> that's not good um that's going to cause you to lose people like Cato think they're playing in a pure game and in in reality they're playing in more of a mixed game Katniss recognizes the mixed game but then how can we learn about what you know let's just maybe look at one or two of the decisions that she makes and see if we can understand you know why was that decision right or wrong maybe we talk about the uh why she blows up the supply pile I mean I think that's a a, a very jarring reset you know somebody like Cato is like I'm just gonna you know, you, you know, you want that stuff. And she's like, you know what? What if I don't want any of that stuff? Um, and, I, and I've done that before where, you know, maybe somebody thinks I want something and I go ahead and walk away from that. Um, that very much could be in personal and business some kind of some kind of a let's say you, you used the word glory before. Um I think a magnanimous leader knows when to walk away from glory um, and be motivated to walk away from glory because they have uh, a higher set of values. You know, their goal is is a is a grander game, right? And when your goal is a grander game, you can blow the supply pile up. Um, what do you guys think about that? 
Yeah, I, I, I want to jump in here real quick because I think she's adaptable. I think one of the things with that with that move right there, we know Kato's like, hey, if you want it, you're going to have to come get it. And she's like, well, I don't want it. And sometimes we're going to have to hurt ourselves a little bit too in the process. That's kind of what she did because she could have used those supplies, but she says, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take a hit here. I'm going to stub my toe here. So I, I might be limping for a little bit, but hopefully I can start walking again and running. And I think being adaptable to that. No, no, no. Cato, he's playing that finite game. He's like, so now his whole game is blown up because now he has to kind of rethink or, or re-strategize. But at this point in the game, it's kind of late, right? Um, so we see that. I, that's, I was thinking about that when you were talking about that. Man, she was adaptable and knowing like, hey, you know what? I'm going to be hurting myself in this year, but she's playing that longer game that infinite game to kind of get to the end. And I think that was one of the moves that she did. I thought was interesting. Yeah. Kato, um, you're absolutely right. Kato's playing a finite game. It's obvious. Kato's smart for playing smart ish for playing the game at some points, the way that he's playing it, because he's just like, okay, if I can just make it to the end with this group of people, like I can kill them all. So it won't be a big issue for him. Basically. Um, He, his game makes sense if it's a pure strategy. Right. If it's a pure strategy game, but the fact that it's a mixed strategy game. So Katniss brings something to the table here. And this this is really hard to find the wisdom, especially from a business and, a, you know, a lot like the primary things we talk about, are like business and personal relationships. Um, obviously, those are like two big areas of leading. But from it's really hard to find the wisdom of when to zag when others are zigging. And that's what Katniss does here, right? She, they expect her to be the piece to to play towards the gravitation towards equilibrium rather than the creating a new equilibrium. And so she already breaks the mold in that way, but then she breaks the mold again instead of trying to steal something, right? She doubles down on that and blows up the supplies. Um, she does so for multiple reasons, you know, because it it de-risks her plan to to go for that, and also because it kind of shakes up the world that she's in. It kind of like takes the system, it takes your snow globe and like shakes it up, and suddenly like people are like, whoa, what's going on? Like there was a smoke over here and then they, you know, they're, they're turning on each other and then, and she feels bad about that. We'll get to that in part two. But the, I think the key here is that sometimes the, the most optimal move is not the first or the, the move that when you first do like the game theory type analysis and you're like, okay, like what's the total points going to be for this move versus that move? Like sometimes that's not when you're playing a longer game and when you have a strong back game the the just the general like front game. Hey, I'm just going to move my king here. Right. In, in chess isn't going to be uh, isn't going to work out that way. You have to feel be able to see that we're playing a mixed strategy game and in a mixed strategy game. Sometimes I have to go the opposite direction in order to kind of like because I can create an advantage by going the opposite direction first, then going the true direction that I want to go. I think we should wrap it right here. I mean, I think that that is a great way to set the table for uh, the second half. And um, if you guys have any parting thoughts as far as that while we uh, before we wrap it here? I'm good, Derek. I'm excited to move into part two where we'll talk about what Katniss's leadership superpower is. Awesome. All right. Well, if you had anything else, uh, those that are listening, uh, hit us up on Twitter on The Wonder Tour. And uh, we already know what we're doing next week. So we will see you next time. And remember, all those who wonder are not lost. <laughs>